the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please do be seated. I can't do the accent, but I want to tell you a story. Some of you will know who I'm talking about there. It's a story written by um, the Bishop of Manchester. For a long while, they sat opposite each other, gently holding hands. She with her head bent, her body racked with sobs, the angel calm, still, waiting for the word that would have to be spoken. At last, the woman lifted her head, pushed her hair away from tear-stained cheeks and said simply, I can't. Silence followed. She was gathering her energies to offer a reason, a rationale for why her courage had failed her, why she, who had always been obedient to God's will and law, was now withholding her consent. Don't be afraid, said the angel. He'd used those words before at the very beginning of the meeting when his sudden presence and the light that quietly emanated from him had so clearly scared her. Now half-formed sentences began to tumble from her about her place within this close-knit community, the shame that the inevitable gossip and accusations would bring both on her and her family, the loneliness of a life as a tainted woman, one no man would take as his wife the pull towards prostitution in the struggle to sustain herself and the child she would bear. It was too much. Please let this cup pass from her. The angel still held onto her as tightly as ever. Only when she had emptied herself of both her words and her tears did he respond. Fear not, he said for a third time. God loves you. He loves you as deeply as ever. This was never a command, always an invitation to come on a particular journey with him. Go in peace, marry, have children and bring them up in that same love of the Lord which you yourself know. And teach them this, that God in their generation will do this great thing, Tell them to be alert, to watch for the signs of the promised one. The one that is coming among them. Live long, do not regret your decision today, but of your mercy, when you hear of him, pray for his mother. He stood up, passed out of the house, walked perhaps a stone's throw away from the building, then stopped to wipe a hand across his eyes. He gazed back at the woman's home for some minutes. Silently, he held her and all that she was before the one who had sent him. From somewhere within his robes, he pulled out a scroll and unfurled it. It was a list of names, women's names. Many had already been crossed through and now there was another to strike out. He looked at the details for his next assignment. 
another unpromising village, another pious but conventional upbringing, another dispiritingly traditional name, Mary. Be it unto me according to thy word. I love that story that I've just told. I remember the first time I heard it, it helped to overcome the familiarity, the over-familiarity of the gospel story we've also heard this morning. We always need to look a bit closer. The gospel story is entirely consistent with the way God works. God doesn't seem to be too worried about scandal, about what people might think. He's used prostitutes to protect people. He's chosen murderers to be kings and apostles. He put an uneducated fisherman in charge of his church. He chose a woman as the first witness to the resurrection. At a time when women weren't even considered able to testify in a court of law. And yet Mary does say this. Be it unto me according to your word. We've all heard that phrase. We may have heard sermons or read books all about Mary's yes to God. We've maybe thanked her for agreeing to cooperate with God's plan. But be it unto me according to thy word is not quite all right. I'll do it. It's much more like, I believe it will be as you say. It's positive faith, not passive acquiescence. Mary was a teenager, but she wasn't saying, whatever. Her response came from faith. Even before Gabriel makes his entrance, Mary was a woman who believed God's promises to Israel. Mary was used to meditating on God's promises. She believed the Messiah would come. She believed that God was coming to save his people. And she confirms that faith by setting off to see Elizabeth. She didn't sit and wait and worry and wonder if she'd just been seeing and hearing things. So what about us today? What does this young girl's attitude of faith have to say to us now? Well, it might be easy to think that in Mary's day, they were primitive folk who were much more likely to believe in things like angel visitations and virgin births. They had much more of a culture of faith than we do now. But while religion may have been more in vogue, Mary was part of a nation under the sandal of Roman rule. The history of her people was one of failure and exile, of defeat and subjugation. And yet, she believed in the promises of God. The God who puts down the mighty and scatters the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. We live in a nation where God is often ridiculed, where faith can be seen as a curious embarrassment, as a sign of naive plausibility or dangerous bigotry. But mostly Jesus, God and the church are just not on people's radar. 
they are an irrelevance to the day-to-day -day lives of most people. And it's so easy for even us in the church to swim with this cultural tide, to end up as functional atheists, running our committees and structuring our lives as if God didn't exist to rely on our own strength and intelligence and money and power to get things done. And so we need Mary to remind us this day and every day, to remind us that our faith should be one that trusts in the promises of God, that celebrates his presence with us all the time whether we are socially distanced, whether we're not even able to meet in person, that celebrates his presence even when we can't gather round his table, that believes in his spirit's presence in this world, in all our worlds, wherever we are. We need to ask for a faith that says, Lord, we believe you have been, you are, and you will be active in our lives, in our church, in our country. Be it unto us according to thy word.